Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You know I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Andrew Zimmerman, or Andy, as he likes to go by. He's the president of Frog, one of the world's leading design and innovation firms. Prior to Frog, he was managing director of Accenture New Businesses, where he launched the Accenture Interactive and Mobility Businesses, which now makes up Accenture Digital. Before Accenture, he was managing director at Idea Lab, one of the first and most successful incubators. On the show today, we talk about the ecosystem of agencies, partners in design, as well as consulting, and where he sees the ecosystem going. We talk about a lot about design and some recent products that they've launched, as well as the history of Frog and all of the things that they've touched, many of the products that you've probably used yourself. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Andy Zimmerman. Andy, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Alan. Good to be here. Yeah, it's nice to have you. And um, I was reading your background, and you you have to tell me what this business is about you traveling with the circus. What was that all about? Well, it's, uh, it's an unusual experience, and it's something that almost everybody who looks at my LinkedIn asks me about. This is usually the first question. But what happened was uh, when in college, I was an aspiring uh, writer, novelist, and I applied for a fellowship. It's called a Watson Fellow. And the requirements of that fellowship is that it require travel outside the United States and be something you couldn't do in a normal graduate program. 
and you write a proposal. And I propose to travel with European circuses and to write a novel inspired by that experience. And I've been writing, doing work at my college, Haverford College, using circus uh, metaphors and symbolism and so forth. So it wasn't like I made it up just to get the fellowship. And I said I wanted to travel with European circuses because they're one-ring traveling circuses, unlike the Barnum & Bailey arena-style circus we have here in this country. And uh, I actually won the fellowship. And uh, I spent a year traveling with circuses in Western Europe and at that time in the Soviet Union and uh, wrote part of a book, never finished it, and interviewed and, and, and spent time with all kinds of circus actors, whether it's trapeze artists or clowns or knife throwers or whatever. And uh, obviously, it was, a, it was a very unique experience. And uh, I'm not sure. The only thing I tell people now, they said, what did you learn from that that you apply in your current work? And back then, I interviewed clowns, and now I interview senior executives, I guess, is sort of the only thing I can point to. And life is sometimes a circus. So uh, maybe that's... Uh, what I learned, but it was an interesting way to start out my, I guess, career or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, no, I, I love that. I love that. I used for a long time, I was a consultant and I, um, from time to time, I would carry a, a pack of crayons in my work bag and occasionally a client would see it. And I really didn't, I really just did this for a joke because occasionally I would like to like plop them on the table and they would always ask me, well, what are those for? And I was like, those are my executive writing tools. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So no, it's, uh, it's it's at least it's a uh, it's a conversation starter. And when I first joined Frog, I have to say, kind of went on a tour of all our studios around the world. And invariably, the first question I got from Frogs was, "Could you talk about your traveling with the circus?" <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, you have had quite the varied background beyond circus traveling. You've been in consulting, kind of incubators, venture-ish backgrounds, and design. And I'm curious if you could just speak to the experiences you've had, because they have been kind of across the board, and, and what those those experiences, those professional experiences have provided you. Yeah. So always in the area of some sort of professional services and technology, that probably is a common thread. But I worked with some of the largest consulting firms in the world, PwC and Accenture specifically. And then I worked uh, in, you know, Frog Design, we're relatively small, very having high impact, but a very small group relative to Accenture PwC. And then I did spend some time in Idea Lab which at the time during the dot-com era was probably the most successful incubator where we created companies from scratch. I'd say the common thing is um, I tend to get involved in stuff on the leading edge of innovation. So for example, I was the head of e-business at PwC back in the dot-com era. Obviously, a lot of innovation in Idea Lab. And then at Accenture, I was involved, ran something called Accenture New Businesses, which ultimately became Accenture Digital. So I've always kind of had this... Um, for some reason, falling into like what the next new thing was. And that's sort of what Frog is about. I mean, innovation and growth strategies and coming up with new products and services and disrupting kind of business models and so forth. So in, some, in many respects, these other experiences were great training for me working at Frog. I'm not a designer. I am a writer. I mentioned the circus uh, novel. I did, I did uh, come out with a novel earlier this year. So I am a storyteller, but I'm not a visual designer, interactive designer. But I try to bring my uh, general management skills and then also the fact that I'm pretty good at telling a story. And a lot of what we do in design is inspire clients to aspire to something different and new by telling them a, a story that really gets them excited. 
I agree. I agree. I mean, pretty much everything we do in life is somehow related to telling a story as well. And design ripples through about everything in life. So it would, it would make sense that those would need to go hand in hand. It was years ago. I hadn't ever really heard of Frog until a number of years ago when I, I came across Ethan and Bowden. And uh, we just crossed paths. We were working in like a healthcare space, which was odd how we crossed cross paths. But he he mentioned Frog and it made me kind of look them up at that point in time. This was probably 10 years ago now. And um, I didn't really understand the history of the company. Even then, I, I really didn't dig too deep until preparing for this interview. But could you tell listeners just a little bit about the history of the firm? It's, it's kind of fascinating, frankly, and all the things that the firm has touched over the years. Sure. Yeah, it's actually um, in certain circles, obviously in design circles, Frog is very well known and in, in technology circles, but it is a small company and a lot of people have never heard of it, the company. We are 50 years old. And our founder, Hartman Messenger, is probably the leading or one of the leading designers in history. He, he was on the cover of Time magazine because of the work he did at Apple and so forth. So very well-known designer. And he was a bit of a rebel. He was at, going to design school in Germany, which is kind of the home of the Bauhaus School of Design, whose mantra is form follows function. is very engineering-driven. And Hartman rebelled against that philosophy and said that form should follow emotion. And at the time, this was a radical notion. And his his point was, we need to make functional designs. We also need to make designs that touch people on an emotional level. So he designed a uh, integrated hi-fi system for a company called Wiga in Germany, which really took off. It was beautifully designed. And Sony caught wind of it and actually bought Wiga. And that's how they were introduced to Hartmut. And then Hartmut designed the Sony Walkman and the Sony Trinitron TV system, both obviously revolutionary in their time. At that time, Steve Jobs believed that Sony was the paradigm of great design. Back then, they were. And so he asked Marita, the head of marketing at Sony, how do you guys come up with all these beautiful products? Because I want to make beautiful computers. And he was introduced to Hartman. He flies over to Germany to meet Hartman. He stays at Hartman's house, at his mother's house. And he's a vegetarian, so all he would do is eat pancakes three meals a day while getting to know Hartman. And of course, as soon as he heard the philosophy of form follows emotion and human-centric design, Steve Jobs fell in love with Hartman. And he offered him a contract to pay him $2 million a year to design all the Apple products if he would move to Palo Alto and live within a mile of Steve Jobs' house. At that point, Essinger renamed the company from Essinger Associates to Frog stood for the Federal Republic of Germany, and moved to Palo Alto and designed the Apple IIc, Macintosh, Lisa, and then followed Steve Jobs to Next, where he designed NextCube. And that sort of was the first decade of Frog. And since then, we're famous for work we've done for Disney, the Disney cruise ship, the reimagining of Disney World with the Magic Band, people like Sirius XM, the original Dell website, and, and Dell Computer. And even to this day, things like the new HBO Max platform and so forth. So we're, we do both industrial design and digital design and experience design and remain probably, you know, one of the leading design firms in the world, certainly. And we're now in 10 countries in 14 studios. And uh, that's sort of the history of Frog. 
That's awesome. Yeah, it's amazing how many of those products I've owned. You know, like Walkman, the Trinitron TV from Sony, the Disney products or the experiences. It, yeah, it's just amazing. Not to mention the Apple products for sure. Well, one of the things I like to say is um, because I, I did come from Accenture and I have huge respect for Accenture as a company, just to be clear. But I do like to say that Accenture and Frog are roughly the same age and Accenture is about 10,000 times the size of Frog. But probably we have had as much impact on the economy and, and on people's lives as a company like Accenture, which is kind of extraordinary. And as you're right. I mean, there's a lot of things that you we touch consumers and, and business customers all the time. And it's uh, that's why we attract the best talent in the industry, because they want to work on the projects we do. Let's talk about a recent design project. And you mentioned briefly the HBO Max platform, but... Maybe we could talk about that just in terms of like what went into it, how you, the design challenge you were faced with and, and kind of where you took it, if you will. Sure. This is kind of a classic, what we call frog shape problem, which is um, creating a new product service and doing something that's differentiated, that's innovative. Clearly, some elements of an offering like HBO Max, uh, the content and the pricing are going to be absolutely critical to its success. But we also wanted to look at the platform and the experience and could we do things with the platform that would differentiate or innovate as compared to people like Netflix and so on. So the way we do this kind of work is we start out by doing immersive research where we just observe consumers in their homes using different streaming services. We interview them. We take videos of how they use these different platforms. And out of that, we identify a set of what we find to be unmet needs or so forth. So for example, something like Netflix, I think that all of us can get a little frustrated with the algorithms and recommenders actually finding, it can take you half an hour to find a show that's half hour long. And while it was truly an innovation in its time, the idea of using algorithms as a recommendation engine, what we added with HBO Max is a lot more social elements to it. So people sharing playlists, celebrities sharing playlists, people being able to watch together and with an interactive chat and so forth. I think one of the reviewers referred to the platform as Spotify meets Netflix. And so what we kind of said is we want to have human algorithms, recommendations, that's through social. And then we also have the quantitative AI type of algorithms as well. And that combination is going to make it more of a social and more of an entertaining and hopefully more of a relevant experience for people using a service. So that's the sort of exercise we go through. And of course, we design the screens and the, and the interface and so forth. But I think, you know, in this case, a lot of the true innovation was around the concept of introducing social to streaming. Yeah, well, I think that combination of the algorithm and the people side of the equation definitely can be much more helpful because I have been in Netflix hell, so to speak, trying to find something that's like what I wanted to watch, but I you know, I've already binged through that season. <laughs> so a little help with, or assist from a real person occasionally, I can, I can get behind for sure. Well, um, you've recently, I think it was this year, formed a partnership, an alliance with Tuesday Capital. And could you tell us a little bit about how that came about? Because I know it's related to the work you do in the startup community, the venture support and helping you know, launch companies, not just products and services. Right. Yeah. We, it's interesting. We started out our lives really starting up companies, Hartman worked with, with everything from Napster to Dell and so forth. And then more and more of our work was with big corporations. And so when I first joined Frog, I actually hired Ethan Imboden. 
he Bennett Frog left, and then I hired him back, and uh, he and I joined together to start up Frog Ventures. So what we would do is we'd find companies, startups, very early stage, whose product or service or business model would benefit, we think, tremendously from the input of someone like Frog. But of course, you know, they couldn't necessarily afford us. They, a lot of them are bootstrapping and so forth. And so what we would do is charge them some fees, some in fees, but to also take equity in the company. And we started doing this about five years ago and built up a portfolio investments that if you use the measures that venture capitalists use for C-stage funds, we were sort of in the top quintile of performance. So we had done some very good investing of sweat equity into these in the portfolio of companies. But we wanted to do more. And from a cash flow point of view, you know, it's a little difficult because obviously the equity is not going to be liquidated for, for many years because they're so in such early stage. So we, we came up with a pretty innovative, I think, unique deal where we, in effect, and I'm going to simplify it a little bit in the interest of time, but in effect, we sold our portfolio of equity to Tuesday Capital and became their largest limited partner in their most recent fund. And we also operate as a general partner. So we source deals for them and they source deals for us. And now for these companies, Instead of us taking sweat equity, Tuesday pays us for our services and they take the equity. And of course, we're a partner with them. We share in the, in the upside, although you know not as much as we would if we don't it outright. And we, you're right, we announced this, uh, this uh, deal in January. COVID kind of slowed us down a bit, but we've now done four deals. We have a number in the pipeline and it's just a fantastic relationship. And Tuesday you know, is one of the leading seed capital uh, venture funds in the Valley. And so it's been it's a, been a great relationship and, and allows us to do a lot more startups. No, that makes perfect sense. I mean, I know that a lot of a lot of professional services firms, you know, agencies and the like on the advertising or marketing side have tried this. None I have found have been that successful at it. You guys definitely hit the mark in terms of success. And maybe it's because you're attacking the, the critical problem of the product or the service to begin with, right? I don't know if you would say that's true or not. It could be as well that a lot of agencies that I, if I think back about it, that I've heard try this, they, they also don't have all the work in-house, meaning so it's not all soft hour costs that they're, so they've got hard pocket costs as well. So I don't, I don't know if you want to speak to like why you think you guys have been successful, but it does stand out. Yeah, I think, and I want to give a credit to Ethan. He has this unique background of being a designer and he is an entrepreneur and he started up a company and sold it and um, raised money. So he really knows both the venture business and design business. I obviously come with some venture experience myself. And so I think that we're kind of hard-nosed about both the quality of the management and the idea and then also, is our contribution going to be a nice to have or could it be a pivotal moment, an interaction with Frog? And based on that, those criteria, we would do the investment. And I'll say that I think now we even have a, a better kind of, not story, but I think we're going to have better results because Tuesday Capital brings truly a venture capital, seed capital lens to the deals. We bring the design and strategy lends to the deal. And uh, if we invest in you, that's, <laughs> that's a pretty big compliment because uh, you know they, they get thousands of deals and we get hundreds of deals. And the other thing, by the way, I would say is in certain communities, technology and so forth, the fact that Frog has designed something is news in and of itself for a startup. The startup doesn't have, almost by definition, much of a brand when they're starting out. In some ways, the frog brand, you know, <laughs> might be. And so like we did some work with a company called Heatworks, which is a heating technology. And we created a dishwasher. We heat uh, water heating 
uh, system and so forth. And we took it out to Consumer Electronics Show. And for three years in a row, the product we designed for them won uh, Best in Show in their category. And I, I think it's one, it's a brilliant design, but also the fact that this is designed by Frog. And some of the coverage was, you know, this dishwasher designed by Frog who designed, you know, the Macintosh and so forth. It's just a nice branding for a company that doesn't have a brand yet, like Heatworks. Right, right. It's transferred equity. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know? thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, yeah. that's, yeah, that's exactly. the right way to describe it. Exactly. No, it's good. That's great. You have had such a diverse background. I mean, across the consulting agency venture, like you described, um, how do you think about the ecosystem of service providers and like agencies, consulting firms, et cetera, like in the future? It seems it's all kind of blurring together, frankly. Yeah, I think we're, we're, we're in very interesting times. We're owned by uh, Capgemini, which is, you know, a very large $20 billion multidisciplinary professional services firm in everything from strategy and management consulting to technology and uh, software development and uh, outsourcing. So, you know, you look at people like Capgemini, you look at Accenture Interactive, and you look at publicists, for example, and yeah, it's getting pretty hard to distinguish between uh, the companies. Now, obviously, a publicist comes at it principally from a traditional agency point of view, having added some IT and design skills. And likewise, you could say Accenture, Capgemini come at it from a technology point of view, but then adding design and in the case of Accenture, even agency capabilities. I think what's bringing it together is two things. One is that the CMO is becoming more a more and more important buyer of professional services and technology. And they really are having more and more say in anything digital because more and more the digital experience is the experience for the consumer. And so as a CMO becomes a more important buyer of services, I think that the traditional IT services companies are saying, hey, wait a second, we need to get in front of them, not just the CIO or the CTO or the COO. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So I think that's one thing that's driving it. The second thing is the idea that brand, product and service, and experience are just blurring together. It's all becoming one. And so, you know, there's a lot of ways to create experiences. Some are technology-enabled, some process-enabled, some advertising and, and media-related. And you're going to have clients that just want to have one place to go to get these kinds of solutions. And so I think it's, um, you know, you're going to end up with a bunch of mega companies that are some combination of the traditional agency networks and the traditional consulting firms. 
Yeah, makes a lot of sense. As you think about design and where design is going in the relationship to that ecosystem and, and the change with, within it, like where do you see design going? Or is obviously we talked about HBO Max, that's a app, right? Like a digital product. Do you see more design challenges in the digital space? Or I'm just curious where you see design going? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. There's a, I mean, that's a, that's a kind of a, pretty big question for someone yeah, I know. running for all. I mean, you know, I, I don't know if we can fit it into a podcast here, but I'll talk about a few things and hopefully try to keep it short. But one thing is, um, and this is before COVID, I mean, I, we were seeing more and more interest in what we call convergent design or experience design. It kind of picks up what I, in the last question, where client, we're saying to clients, look, don't think of this as I need a digital service, or don't think of this as I need uh, to design some hardware product. I mean, you're designing a customer experience that can be everything from customer support that can be an out-of-box experience when they get something in a mail before they even use the product i mean there's so many touch points now and the touch points are starting to blur and so one of the trends in design is is the silos between the traditional kind of interactive design graphics design industrial design and so forth is blurring and so you have these designers that are able to kind of straddle a customer journey and kind of create this convergent experience whether it's a combination of retail digital in-home you name it industrial so that's one trend convergent design then i think the second thing is the next two things are are, are going to be really interesting and are somewhat driven by covid uh, one is that just the, you know the whole push to digital and obviously all the metrics are skyrocketing e-commerce and so forth where people have moved to digital channels and particularly age groups and demographics that maybe were slower to adopt digital but now have adopted it out of need and so what you're doing is you have a lot more people that are digitally proficient and you have a lot more data. You have this digital exhaust that's being created and more and more transactions and interventions have this digital trail to it. And so this is creating more and more opportunities for AI driven types of analytics and ways of influencing experiences using AI because there's more digital exhaust out there. And then the second thing I think is going to be really interesting is AR, VR, these sort of augmented reality technologies are really starting to take off. And with a lot of things becoming more virtual, and I do think it's not just COVID, I don't think we're going to be going back to normal. I think AR, VR is going to be a really interesting opportunity for designing experiences going forward. So those are some of the areas, AI and data exhaust, AR, VR, and just the whole idea of convergent design are some of the hotter areas for us. Interesting. I think the more practice we get with being remote on a daily basis or virtual, the more you're really starting to rethink like when business travel, as one example, opens back up, do I really need to go on that trip and spend you know four hours in the airport both ways <laughs> to get there and have a meeting and, and come back? Maybe not anymore. And it means redesigning space because, you know, now they'll say, we'd say the new, new offsite is onsite. The new offsite is like showing up at work and onsite is in your home. And um, I think retail is interesting too. I mean, obviously retail is, you know, has been badly hurt. I mean, physical retail by COVID, but it will drive down real estate costs. And I think also we think it will make it more fluid. So we could envision kind of a we shop equivalent to we work where there'll be more and more pop-ups and these sort of momentary experience destinations that are affordable because rents are going to go down, retail rents. And so, you know, we think that it's not that retail ever goes away, but the purpose of physical retail may shift and the nature of the economics and the business model may shift dramatically. 
No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it would bring a lot more excitement to the category too, frankly, to just be having a, a event driven or <laughs> pop-ups and, and exhibitions, if you will. Yeah, it could be more pop-ups and permanence in another 10 years. Yeah, that's true. Well, it's been great talking about design. Let's switch gears a little bit. One of the things I like to do is get to know the person behind the microphone. And um, my favorite question, again, a big question, is uh, has there been an experience of your past that defines or makes up who you are today? Well, that's a pretty easy one to answer because I did, and I don't mean I'm not I don't mean to plug my my book, but I um I did come out with a novel a few months ago called Journey, and it is inspired by true events. And I went through an experience about ten years ago of a spiritual awakening. I'd gone to a, a little village in England called Glastonbury, which is kind of well known for its music festival, but also as a place for spiritual kind of seekers. And I actually had a reading with a mystic or a soul reader, and that kind of opened me up and changed my life and ultimately inspired me to write the novel. And I'm writing a second one that follows it. And what that did for me, because I wasn't a particular, well, I just wasn't a religious person, frankly. I was brought up in a, in a religious family. I wasn't. And um, what it did for me was kind of just uh, get me in touch with myself, become more vulnerable, become more authentic. And what I've found and people found <laughs> that worked with me is that I changed in terms of my, my work style and uh, in a very good way. So that was the life-changing event for me was, was that awakening 10 years ago. If you don't mind me asking, what sparked that search? What was the nexus, I guess, of the or the uh, the impetus to go on that search? Well, really, what now I would say is it was a synchronistic moment. I didn't even know what that word meant back then, but I think it was a casual conversation at a cocktail party with an English couple that lived in Glastonbury. And after they told me what was going on there in terms of all the healers and druids and witches and everything, I found it kind of fascinating but weird. However, I couldn't get it out of my head. And I was at Accenture at the time, and I was running a pretty big multi-billion dollar part of Accenture. And I frankly think that I was burning out. Accenture is the kind of place you travel constantly globally. And um, while I was quite successful at the time, I think inside, you know, I was just losing touch with who I was. So I think my, I don't mean to get all new agey, but, you know, I think my soul was thirsty and it drew me. It said, you know, it drew me, you have to go to Glastonbury. You have to have a reading because, you know, something isn't right here. And um, I think it was as simple as that. I was not so, you know, I, I wasn't aware that, that I needed it. But when the universe kind of gave me the opportunity, I was able to take it. And I'm very grateful for that. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Not to draw parallels, but I will for a minute. I also grew up in a household that was largely religious, probably by the middle school time frame, I, I kind of rejected it. Just some for some reason didn't suit and um, became more interested in other types of religions, Eastern religions, or there's Buddhism, or even, frankly, indigenous beliefs, you know, in terms of how we're connected to the earth and, and the things around us and nature. So it's interesting. There's a little bit of a parallel. I've, I've come back to it now in my early 40s and starting to ask similar questions. So that's why I was intrigued. <laughs> yeah, no, I, it's interesting. I, I left my parents' church when I was a teenager and became a Quaker, which is why I went to Haverford College, which was founded by Quakers. It's not a Quaker school per se, but has lives a Quaker kind of uh, life. So I was a seeker back then. And then I, th I think when I got into business, you know, I kind of lost my way. And I'm not saying I'm a deep believer in that you can be spiritual 
but also of this world. I don't have to put on a robe and go to the top of the mountain and sit in a cave all day. Um, I can be, I think that uh, there's a duality to things, but I've written a couple articles, but I do think that uh, particularly at this moment in time, if you're to be a leader, you need to show your vulnerability so that other people feel they're in a safe place to show theirs. And I'm just seeing more and more of that. And the old style leader, the Jack Welch type of thing, may rest in peace. I just think that's a model for another day or previous day. So I shared uh, when I wrote the novel, part of it was, um, and it made number one bestseller for metaphysical fiction for a while in the spring on Amazon. But I um, I just, I, I mean, I'm not going to make, make money writing, but I just wanted to get it out into the world to let particularly business people understand, you know, you can be vulnerable and open yourself up. Don't, you don't have to hide the fact that you're human. And um, sometimes, you know, we kind of feel, I think, a little insecure about that. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing. And um, I appreciate, appreciate what you're doing. I'll have to check out the book and give it a read. Maybe it'll open me up a little bit as well. What advice would you give your younger self if you're starting this journey all over again? Well, what I would advise my younger self is to listen to my younger self because one of the things that happened to me after the reading is different events started happening. And one was that I found in my parents' house a letter that I had written to myself when I was 17. And I asked myself a series of questions. It was sealed shut. I never remembered writing it. And when I read this letter in this moment, this was like a month after the soul reading, it helped me realize who I was, you know, in my, my true self. And so I think stay in that childlike state while being a grown person and, you know, responsibility for family and everything, I think is, is um, what I would tell my younger self is don't give your younger self up. Don't lose track of who you are. I like that. Well, a little bit of a silly question, I realize after the last two deeper ones, <laughs> but I like sometimes the answers and it, frankly get interesting ideas for myself. Have you had an impactful purchase of $100 or less in the last say year, six months to a year? Well, I was going to say the headphones that you recommended that I get for this podcast, because it definitely <laughs> enhanced my, my virtual uh, meeting experience uh, quite a bit. So I want to give you a little credit for that. I think it was uh, around $100 or whatever. But I'd say the most impactful purchase for me has been Spotify in that I had not been using it and having more time and, and kind of like wanting some quiet time not being on the computer. I mean, I think we all have screen exhaustion but I don't have audio exhaustion. And that Spotify experience for me, and frankly, you know, some of the inspiration for HBO Max as well, was this idea of music exploration. And I just reconnected with music for the first time in a long time. And, you know, hours and hours of listening to music, uh, not looking at a screen, maybe listening to music while going around. I, I like, sounds like yourself. I love connecting in nature. I'm looking out right now over the ocean in Big Sur. So I, I, Spotify, I mean, I, I don't like to buy things, you know, like products. I like experiences and that that's been a really brilliant enhancement to my life experience in the last uh, 12 months. I wish I had your view right now. If you're looking out over Big Sur. No, it's just gorgeous. You know. It's making my basement feel a little closed in <laughs> right now. <laughs> no, that sounds fantastic. Well, two more questions for you and then we'll wrap up a little bit more marketing focused as you look out around the world and are looking for inspiration or just things that you like and are you know, curious about, are there any brands or, or companies or causes that you're following or you think other people should be taking notice of? Well, I think, I think there's a group of companies, this is a little more in Europe than the U.S., who have made commitments about um, carbon footprint and um, 
I do think, and I, by, by no means am I, am I downplaying uh, the pandemic and its impact, but I mean, I, do, I still think the greater story, and you could argue somewhat related, is just the resilience of our, of our planet. And so all the companies, and I'm proud to say Capgemini is one of them, that made the commitment to be you know, zero carbon by 2030, all those brands, I think, deserve credit. I wish that the U.S.-led companies were a little more forward-thinking than they are in Europe right now, so kudos to them. I think IKEA is a company that, you know, has done a really good job. Obviously, it's partly probably because it's family owned, but in terms of uh, a lot of their profits going into a foundation that's committed to education and third world development and climate change and so forth, the spirit and culture of that company of providing kind of like the Henry Ford of furniture, you know, providing furniture that anyone can afford and being very creative in their digital kind of channel as well. And also being very eco-sensitive in terms of something that when you're making furniture, you could be looking the other way. But I like their social commitment. And I like the fact that they're making affordable products for everyone type of thing. And, you know, beautifully designed as well. So that's a brand that I admire tremendously. Um, One of our ventures, I can't help but put a plug in for one of our startups, Bellwether. It makes a coffee roaster that is miniaturized and has a different way of roasting that's much more eco-efficient. So most coffee beans now are go to these huge, you know, coffee roaster complexes in the city and then are shipped out to the Starbucks of the world. This technology allows you to roast the the, the beans in the coffee uh, store, not retail, which means they're fresher and it's actually more eco-efficient. But the other thing that they've done is they've given consumers the opportunity when they buy different brands of coffee and they're branded by part of the world that to add a dollar to their purchase and that dollar goes directly to the farmer that created that coffee. And it turns out that by giving a dollar for a cup of coffee, you're doubling the profit that farmer makes on that pound of coffee that they sold. I mean, the margins are that thin. So it it actually helps third world farming develop, reduces carbon emissions, and gives the consumer a fresher coffee. And they just raised uh, $40 in a B round and quite successful. And we worked with them at various you know, phases from the beginning. So startups, there's a lot of startups these days that are having an impact as well. No, for sure. That's, I'll have to check them out. That sounds pretty fascinating. Well, um, last question for you. What do you feel like is the largest opportunity or threat facing marketers today? Well, I do think that with the weighting of experience toward digital as a result, just it was a trend anyway, but obviously the pandemic accelerated it. One of the things that's a little tricky is there is a bit of digital dominance going on. And, you know, there are a few companies out there that are owning an incredible amount of share of marketing channel. And I'm I'm not suggesting at all that anyone's doing anything monopolistic per se. I'm just saying it is what it is. And I think it's because of increasing returns. You know, with share of network, you have the ability to build more network. And I mean, Amazon is an amazing company. Now they dominate a lot of things, but they did it the old fashioned way. I mean, they really are an amazing company and they've innovated and started up a number of businesses and been successful. So it's not a question of their management capability, but we are in a place where there's a handful of companies that are controlling the digital channel. And I think if you're a marketer, it's like, what do I do to ensure that I have means of of reaching consumers outside of the four or five main channels. How can I be innovative in that regard? I mean, I I guess you could say it was like back in the old days in the U.S. when you had three networks, I guess, and they 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 reached ninety percent of of consumers. But there also was post office and other things. Uh, so I don't know. I just think it's interesting, and and maybe from a strategic point of view, I think uh, 
CMOs should be looking at almost a, a bit of a contingency plan or alternative plan so that, that they have some options other than the, the four or five they have now. Yeah, I think you're onto something there. The other thing that it's related in many regards, and I, I wonder if the problem that prevents it from dissipating or, or you know having more shoots, if you will, spring up versus the few that are very dominant is discovery. If you just use uh, you know, Amazon as a retail example, and I equate that to the restaurant business and you going through COVID and how quickly all the restaurateurs in your, down your street eventually found their way to a digital platform that allowed them to sell takeout food. It was amazing how fast they figured that out. And I hope curbside pickup never goes away, frankly, on a personal note, <laughs> other than the waste that you you create, we need to solve that challenge. But now I feel like a discovery of those outlets, right? And those digital channels is the next challenge, right? It, as it relates to restaurants, because there's nothing really stopping me from getting food now that's 30 minutes away because I could plan it, right? I can order it ahead. I can you know, plan a delivery if I want to use a delivery service. Whereas normally when I got ready for dinner, I might just want to walk down the street to my local restaurant. But it becomes a discovery challenge at that point. So I imagine retailers are doing the same thing. I'm sure they're switching to online shopping tools, whether it's Shopify or other types of platforms. And so discovery seems like a, one of the challenges we'll have to crack. And it's particularly important for new businesses and new product services. How do they get, how do they even get noticed? And it's even, uh, it kind of goes back, almost circles back to the Netflix discussion where how do I discover a new show? Because I'm talking to my friend and they said, hey, you should watch this. And are we going to lose some of that without the human touch and without the retail experience, without the office experience, the traditional office experience? And what, how, if we're going to lose it in one dimension, how do we, how do we create alternatives? I think it's going to be, and I think it will be whimsical, it'll be around entertainment, having fun, gamification, those sorts of things, maybe ways that people can discover versus like walking down the street, you know, type right. of stuff. <laughs> right, right. Well, um, Andy, it's been fascinating to have you on. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Okay, well, I enjoyed it. Thank you, Alan. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners, and you can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes with links to anything we talk about on any episode. You can also search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Marketing Today.